Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. For this episode, I sat down with permaculturalist Oliver Kellhammer in June 2018. We discussed topics related to mindful living, such as the practice of permaculture and what it is, the role of art and permaculture, and how Oliver uses this to combat climate change, the spread of wildfires and their implications, and also his marriage to Zen Buddhist priest and novelist Ruth Ezeki. Oliver Kellhammer is an independent artist writer, and researcher who seeks, through his botanical interventions and social art practice, to demonstrate nature's surprising ability to recover from damage. His recent work is focused on the psychosocial effects of climate change, cleaning up contaminated soils, reintroducing prehistoric trees to landscape damaged by industrial logging, and cataloging the ecology of brownfield ecologies. He currently works as a lecturer in sustainable systems at Parsons in New York City. If you are interested in doing your part to make our planet healthier for current generations and generations to come, this podcast will help root your determination. Oliver, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with a simple question of, you are a permaculturist. What is a permaculturist? Well, a permaculturalist is somebody who is um, attempting to improve the relationships between um, human beings and nature. And it's a design philosophy that uh, was first kind of branded, if you want to call it that, by um, uh, these Australians in the 70s, uh, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, amongst others. And, and what they did is they looked into traditional ways uh, that people had developed of living sustainably in the landscape over thousands of years. So it wasn't really their invention, but they started to realized that there were certain patterns that were successful in relating to uh, landscape and nature in ways that were sustainable over long spans of time. And no matter where they were, be it, you know, in rural China or in, um, you know, Central America or in uh, older, you know, communities in Europe, uh, there were certain design uh, methodologies uh, that people had come upon that were uh, um, in common. What does the term permaculture mean? Well, um, it's a sort of neologism. It's uh, permanent agriculture, uh, but it also could mean permanent culture. So in a sense that we don't try to uh, look at nature separate from the human project. So we try to think of like, how can we be helpful to natural systems, but how can we also maximize the benefits to humans as well? So there's a sort of mutualism in the relationship in permaculture. So 
permanent agriculture, permaculture. But there's uh, precursors to the term. Uh, before the word permaculture was coined by Mollison and his associates, uh, there was a sort of general understanding of uh, processes such as polycultures, which uh, are ways of combining uh, plants, uh, communities, and in, in, in animals as well in ways that were not monocultures, that were far more sort of ecologically based, and this is a very old technique. And then there was things like, um, uh, you know, tree-based systems, like agroforestry systems, which had been practiced uh, for, you know, millennia by by cultures that we don't even really think of as agricultural cultures, but they might be hunter-gatherer cultures, but they deliberately would manage landscapes uh, to optimize them for certain uh, food-bearing species by, you know, either deliberately planting or or just, just getting rid of competitors. So you see that a lot in places like the Amazon or Polynesia, where people manage these plantations, even though they weren't strictly farmers in the way that we understand that word today. Mm-hmm. And so permanent agriculture, why is it considered permanent? Well, permanent is a bit of an overstatement. Um, uh, it's it's nothing is permanent, but the idea of thinking of a system as self-sustaining. So can a system sustain itself over time that it, with minimal inputs? And uh, this is the key. Uh, modern day agriculture is very uh, input intensive. So chemical inputs, uh, agri- uh, in- inputs of, of energy, for example, machinery and so forth. And traditionally, people did not have access to such inputs. I mean, the, the modern uh, fertilizer industry is a sort of byproduct of the weapons industry. It actually came from a similar biochemical processes, uh, you know, of the ability to make artificial uh, nitrogen from, from fossil fuels. And uh, and machinery obviously is is contingent on fossil fuels. So so those are very energy in, in, intensive ways of, of of managing the landscape. But traditionally, you know, when you think of a, a permaculture system, you may think of uh, traditional uh, Japanese systems. Uh, there's a satoyama system where people manage landscapes very. Uh, you know, for long periods of time where there was landscapes managed for timber, but then, you know, there might have been some mushrooms cultivated in there. And then closer to the village, there would have been more intensive management. Uh, So, uh, but it was all very energy efficient because people didn't have like vehicles to go driving like miles away to do something. All the management was, the most intensive management was always done uh, the most closely to where people spent most of their time, like to the village or to the homes. And then less intensive management would occur as you go further from the kind of uh, site of, you know, uh, where where people are living. So um, the idea is that these landscapes uh, are quite stable, even though individual things might come and go, like individual trees might die or or crops would be harvested. But the sort of... um, Landscape itself, the kind of look and feel of the landscape would stay stable over long periods of time. And also it wouldn't require, you know, it would produce the inputs and outputs all in one. So the, the you know, the, the waste products such as the vegetative material or the animal manure would go back into the landscape and the human manure. And then it would generate enough surplus to to feed everyone and maybe have a little bit extra to sell. But these these weren't sort of massive sort of cash crappy kind of systems they were very sustainable and they would they would 
stay kind of stable over long periods of time. So permanent is, is a little bit of a stretch, but mm-hmm. say call them stable. Okay. And organic agriculture and biodynamic, do they fall within the permaculture realm or are they, <clears throat> does that depend on how they're done? Absolutely. I mean, traditionally, you know, there was no such thing as non-organic agriculture until, you know, uh, artificial fertilizers came along with with this uh, fossil fuel based uh, system. Everything was to some extent organic and that required paying very close attention to waste streams so that if you had an animal, you know, that would create manure, you would make sure that that manure went back into the landscape as a nutrient so that the you know, everything, you know, would get recycled. Uh, you know, you know, pollution is just an unused resource, really. That's how permaculture is, is sort of um, looking at things. But, but modern day uh, farms have not really um, followed that protocol. When you think about something like modern day industrial pork farming, right, one of the big problems they have in the American Southeast is the pigs produce massive amounts of manure. Well, this manure isn't reused. It's, it's put into these giant sewage lagoons, which stink up the landscape and create disease because the scale of these things is so big that they can't accommodate their own waste. It's just about producing pork. It's not producing a whole food system. It's just one cash commodity that that is, uh, you know, raised intensively with lots of, you know, kind of artificial inputs. So, I mean, traditionally a pig farmer would have pigs, but that manure would get composted, you know, and and the pigs would be eating the waste from the farm and uh, from the village perhaps. So, it's a different way. Maybe not as uh, many kilograms of pork would get raised, but that pork would be uh, raised using a system of recycling all of the outputs back as inputs. Mm, interesting. I like what you said that pollution is just unused resources. Is yeah. That you stated it. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. It's a design failure. If you're polluting something, it means you haven't found a way to use an output into an input. Okay. And as a permaculturist, what do you do? Well, I'm kind of an oddball uh, permaculturist, really. I, I actually identify as an artist, and uh, my interest was always uh, in broadly speaking social practice. So I would try to figure out, and I continue to do this. I've been doing these kind of projects, you know, for many years since the sort of late '80s. Um, but I found myself in various situations where there was some sort of imbalance or injustice in uh, relationship between people and nature, mostly in urban environments. So, for example, as an artist, I never had a lot of money and I was living in like low-income communities, you know, being low-income myself. And I would notice like these communities would often have uh, a deficit of access to uh, affordable, nutritious food and also like places where where food could be grown or also just just green space in general so i thought well you know i'm a designer i should be able to address this how can we help create justice ecological justice using good design so that's why i got interested in permaculture because they start to you know try to close that that gap between what people need and, and what's available to them, given the sort of power relationships in, in the way uh, cities are, are governed. So I set myself uh, about that task and I became involved in starting things like community gardens. And uh, those community gardens then, while well, you need to create soil because, you know, many urban sites are very 
degraded. They're sort of post-industrial sites where the soil isn't good. So then you have to think, well, where am I going to get soil? I'm not just going to buy it. I'm going to find a way to make it. Now, to make it, you'd be closing waste streams. So there's an enormous amount of organic material that gets discarded in cities. Like um, just speaking from you earlier, you were talking about reclaiming organic waste from supermarkets. Well, there's so much of that. Uh, supermarkets, restaurants, uh, there's just enormous amounts. Um, so then you suddenly have this input, which is uh, somebody else's output, right? So the, the waste of, of the food system is actually a valuable input if you want to create soil for a community garden or a farm. So I started becoming interested in, you know, modifying these relationships. And then also the relationships between the planner and the plan. So oftentimes we become sort of subjects of the planning process. We're, be, we're being told what's good for us and, and cities are often... Um, run by sort of capitalist interests like developers and the politicians who work for them. And so uh, I thought that that wasn't a very good relationship between, you know, the landscape and, and uh, the people who, who, who use it. So perhaps we could, we could change the power relationship and have people design their own landscapes using these kind of sustainable methods, which are uh, very adaptive. I mean, once people learn a few basic rules, you know, they're, they're, they're off designing these landscapes. And, and people often already know these rules. A lot of folks, you know, that I worked with came from traditional agricultural backgrounds in places like China and Central America, who taught me how to think about uh, landscape in a way that's more in balance than the sort of, you know, industrial or development driven models. So uh, there are natural people who, I mean, naturally uh, trained people who have had a background in sustainable agriculture from other countries who've immigrated to places like Vancouver and Toronto and New York, all of where I've lived. So that's kind of my practice. I work as an artist uh, and as an activist in uh, predominantly urban sites, but I've also done some projects in uh, former forestry sites as well. And were you an artist before you got into permaculture? Yeah, I was. I, I went to art school in the well late 70s, early 80s, and then uh, I was very interested in... Um, there are certain artists... Uh, for example, the artist, the German artist, uh, Joseph Beuys, who is one of the founders of the Fluxus movement, uh, did a, a, a number of interventions. Um, uh, one of the ones that was most influential on me as a young artist was this piece called 10,000 Oaks, where he uh, uh, got a large commission uh, to do some sort of public artwork. And instead of making a giant sculpture, he bought 10,000 oak trees and planted them all over the city. And then he put these giant sort of basalt monoliths beside them, these big pieces of basalt rock, to keep them from being, you know, bulldozed over. So in, instead of like a, a monument to like an uh, artist's ego, he created an urban forest, which, you know, changed the climate of the city and, and created a lasting sort of legacy. So instead of art being about the environment, it's art that is the environment. And that's the kind of work that I enjoy doing. Now you have... Uh a website right now that is focused specifically on art and the environment. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, OliverK.org. It's uh, pretty easy to find, and a lot of my projects are uh, documented there. And what type of work do you do through that? Well, the last project I, I've just finished, um, the big sort of elephant in the sort of you know global room is uh, mixed like a lot of metaphors, is, is uh, climate change. And... Uh, 
that is one of the largest sort of ruptures in the sort of relationship that we've had with nature. Uh, you know, we screwed a lot of things up, but now we've really, we've outdone ourselves by screwing up the climate. And it's not just us personally, but, you know, a lot of it has to do with fossil fuels and how we've, you know, over the last 200 years, uh, you know, introduced large quantities of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, which is now creating like havoc. So this is a very interesting situation. I mean, it's it's tragic, but it's also very interesting. Like, how are we going to react to this? And so the last uh, big piece I did was a collaboration with some colleagues at NYU, uh, Marina Zirko and uh, Una Chowdhury and Fritz Ertl. And we all were thinking about what are the sort of psychological effects of climate change? I mean, we know that, you know, the world's getting hotter and more unstable, but what is it doing to our minds? And so we started this campaign called Dear Climate, which is kind of almost like an advertising campaign, but it's also a kind of way for people to communicate with the climate, to write letters to the climate, literally, and uh, say, Dear Climate, you know, you've been so unpredictable lately. It's kind of like a I don't know, a jilted boyfriend or something. So you can write letters. And then this, you know, thing to manifest itself as like these pop-up installations. And right now the latest incarnation of it is at a sculpture park called Storm King, which is just north of New York City. So previous to that, I was working a lot with um, uh, what I call botanical interventions. And that's the sort of bulk of my work. So the last couple of works were directly to do with preparing the landscape for climate change. So, so okay, so if it's going to get four degrees Celsius hotter in, you know, in the northern hemisphere, that's a sort of low ball figure. So they're thinking within the next hundred years, which is, you know, further than our life, lifespans, but, but certainly your, your children uh, uh, or grandchildren will, will sort of be experiencing these kinds of wild swings where we're looking at four degrees Celsius hotter. And of course, that's not going to be evenly distributed, but that's a lot hotter. So places like, you know, Victoria, where we are now, this area will become more like Northern California. Like, so plants that grow here will have, uh, you know, to endure much more heat. So that allows us to contemplate growing different plants. Uh, uh, so I did plants where I uh, did did projects where I deliberately introduced species from much further south into the Canadian landscape. So the last piece I did was called Neo Eocene. The Eocene was a period 50 million years ago where it was actually four degrees Celsius hotter than it is now, and I introduced prehistorically native trees to a clear cut on Cortez Island, British Columbia. And so I introduced trees like redwoods and sequoias and ginkgos and walnuts, which were all native to British Columbia 50 million years ago. And you can find fossils of them in places like Kamloops or the Fraser Valley. But they're now, you know, don't grow here natively. But by putting them back, like it was a sort of idea of like, wow, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll remember that they like it here, you know. And so it's a kind of experiment in assisted migration. And I did a similar project in Malmo, Sweden, where I made these spirals of ginkgo trees, which are visible from the airport. So, you know, there are projects that are kind of what I call speculative botany. So they're experiments. And of course, I won't, you know, be around in 100 years, but somebody will be and they'll see whether these ideas worked. And surprisingly, they're starting to work already. Like, uh, we're finding that with the extreme droughts that we've been having in British Columbia, uh, sorry, on the coast here, uh, we've been having uh, very good success with California native trees in the uh, southern BC environment. So the sequoias and redwoods are doing super well. Mm -hmm. 
we planted a few ginkgos. Well, actually, we have quite a few here at Ravenhill and a uh, small sequoia also. Mm. How have those trees been faring on Cortez? How long ago was it, and are Ex they thriving? Yeah, extremely well. Uh, the ginkgo, not so well. It's a, it's a species that likes summer rain, and that's something that in our current weather patterns, uh, we tend to get summer droughts. And mm. you more so even than us, because you're in a very kind of Mediterranean climate. Uh, but even on Cortez, we're at the tail end of that. And uh, we're finding that species that can tolerate summer drought do well. And uh, the sequoia and the redwood both seem to be doing very well. And they're out, outgrowing the native red cedar in many instances. So we actually think that, you know, this collaborator of mine, Rupert Sheldrake, who's this botanist, uh, well-known British botanist, that uh, somehow... We need to start making some decisions like, do we just let whatever happens happen, you know, and or do we deliberately bring, you know, redwoods and sequoia from like, you know, 600 miles south of here to British Columbia and plant them like and it's an ethical dilemma. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we broke the climate, you know, so should we fix it by reintroducing trees right. or, or do we just let you know, let things die. Is there a concern that these will overtake the current native species, even though they were here thousands of years ago? Is there, such as we have the uh, Scotch broom here that's overtaking our landscape as well as some other yes. invasive species? Yes, yes. And that's a, that's a, that's a real interesting problem. And, and I'm not sure uh, I have the answer. It's certainly a question that we wanted to ask. And I think... Um, when you're introducing new species to the landscape, it's very risky, and there's some very good reasons not to do it. I mean, Scotch broom you just mentioned is, is one of those examples of a plant that seemed like a nice idea, but has turned into a problematic invasive. Uh, but I think if you are introducing species that were formerly native to the ecosystem, it's a slightly different enterprise. Um, and there's a lot of species uh, on the east eastern side of the American continent um, that were much more common in ancient times when there was megafauna around. So there's a couple of uh, common, uh, formerly common trees that are now quite rare. One of them is called honey locust, which, you know, it's it's not hugely common in the landscape, but it but it has these like long pods that nothing eats except for extinct animals that are like ground sloths or uh, um, these these sort of elephant-like creatures that used to live uh, like mastodons. And there's another one called Osage Orange. So these these trees were had vectors that were killed off by early, early uh, you know, inflows of human beings who, who found these big animals easy to kill. And that, that stopped the movement of these trees to the landscape. Uh, it, it, so they only would exist in very small places now. So so this this kind of change has been happening many many you know thousands of years. There's always been some shifting in the climate and also shifting in the human population and the sort of cultures of humans. The various hunting technologies that people came up with that were more efficient that affected the way vegetation was spread to the landscape by animals. So um, yeah, it's 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 a it's an ethical dilemma, and I don't pretend to sort of have one easy answer. I think you really need to consider it on a case by case basis. But I think with the redwood and the sequoia in particular, it's a pretty safe introduction. They also don't reproduce until they get quite old, so uh, they're not like Scotch broom that immediately starts sending seeds all over the place. So, 
And they were formerly native. And they, they have a whole kind of relationship with organisms that already exist in the landscape, like, like redwood forests coexist with Douglas firs, for example, and, and they sort of aren't that different from, uh, they're sort of a southern version of what we already have. So the redwood gradually replaces the cedar as you move down towards the California-Oregon border. So it's a more of a transitional introduction than a sort of brutal, like, let's introduce eucalyptus trees, which may be the completely wrong thing because they were never native to this hemisphere. Right. Absolutely. So you split your time between New York City and Cortez Island, is that correct? Yeah, it's not even a split anymore, unfortunately. I was on Cortez, you know, sort of eight months of the year versus four months or so in New York. But now I'm sort of mostly 10 months of the year in New York. And I'm a lecturer in sustainability at Parsons, uh, the new school for design. So I teach undergrads how not to kill the planet, or at least I try. Some important things to know. How, how's the terrain, the landscape, the environment different between those two those two habitats for you a massive urban environment versus a small remote island off the coast of british columbia you know that's that's very interesting people ask me that uh and uh there's obviously massive differences but there's also you know they're both islands as you said and they're both uh settled you know islands are very kind of interesting places to live they they traditionally have a lot of resources the the foreshore you know, it's a great source of nutrition. Uh, Cortez has a, you know, a long ancient history as a First Nations uh, uh, community um, where people had extensive uh, clam gardens and uh, uh, enormous sort of uh, complicated and, and longstanding uh, mariculture and, and sort of, you know, like uh, trading systems with people in the interior where clams were smoked and traded to interior peoples. And, you know, oddly, Manhattan has a very similar history. I mean, it was known as a sort of um, uh, incredibly uh, rich uh, oyster area, like like when the human uh, sort of, you know, um, project of, of like... Um, you know, the, the Lenape, who were the, the Native Americans there, were very sustainable and harvested these resources in a very mindful and sustainable way. But when the, when the sort of, you know, colonization happened, uh, very, very quickly, you know, from the Europeans, uh, they started exploiting the resource of, of oysters in an unsustainable way by, by, you know, harvesting them in vast quantities. And then... Uh, later on polluting the water so the oysters couldn't live there anymore so so the system that the lenape had of living in balance was sort of thrown out of whack by the europeans so so they're both places that were very shellfish dependent so i mean i suppose that's one similarity cortez has 850 people new york has eight and a half million people uh so um but but both places too i think are uh affected by climate change. And this is something that, that really is is a kind of thing that ties us all together as human beings, uh, no matter where we live, where there's some version of climate change. So I was in, in New York, you know, at the tail end of Hurricane Sandy, and our, our block was hit by the flooding. And uh, it was a disaster. I mean, they're literally a disaster. There was just, you know, people's basements were flooded. There was eight feet of water in, in some basements, less than others. But 
Uh, there was no power for like two weeks. There was a major failure of all the infrastructures. And New York is a rich city. It's like, you know, the capital of capitals, they call it. So, but it still was not able to withstand even a small hurricane. It wasn't even a hurricane by the time it hit New York. It was just sort of coastal flooding. So the city just crumbled. Uh, and Cortez, you know, is is a, a lovely sort of Gulf Island, but it's very vulnerable to... Uh, fires. And as we're starting to get uh, the shift in the climate with these droughts now, we're really having to concern ourselves with like, oh my God, it's not the wet, you know, drippy place that it used to be. It's actually quite dry. And every summer now we have to be very, very mindful of what happens if there's a big fire? How do we get people off the island? Uh, does everybody know each other? And we know that uh, from studying disasters that, you know, people who are likely to survive a, a, a an event like a you know a fire or a flood are the ones who know each other and it's basically not so much about how good are you at tying knots or firing a gun it's it's very much about who do you know and and do you have good social networks so i know on cortez they're very active in creating good community uh relationships with people so everybody knows who to call if there's a you know disaster or who to go and check up on if the phones aren't working and in new york it's the same it was interesting during sandy that the first people to respond were kids who were living around the corner from me who were squatters, and they had the skills to build a bicycle-powered cell phone charger, and they were very good at salvaging food. So the supermarkets were throwing all their food out because the freezers had failed, the power was out, and um, these kids were immediately cooking on the street uh, and serving people food because people's food had gone bad and uh, people didn't have any money. All the ATM machines were broken. And a lot of folks were low income anyways, even if they had an ATM. And uh, so people were kind of bereft and, and hungry. And uh, these punk rock squatter kids stepped up to the plates. And they, again, they had a good sort of organizational framework because they were sort of uh, uh, involved with the Occupy movement, which had just happened the previous year. And the other people who were quick to respond to our hour of need or two weeks of need, surprisingly, were churches. And, uh, you know, people like the Baptist churches and the sort of Pentecostalist, the sort of, you know, uh, Dominican and, and Puerto Rican churches uh, were there the next day with mops and bleach and, and said, do you need anything? We'll help you clean, you know, the basement. Because you can imagine after a hurricane, you get like raw sewage coming up through the drains in the basement. And that's a major, major health hazard, right? So, you have to deal with that pronto. And so, so yes, these, these community organizations, not the government, the government was very late in coming. Uh, they did eventually, but they just couldn't organize themselves mm. effectively. And, and so it was based on these relationship systems uh, that existed on the block to come to our aid in the very early hours. So in a way, it was almost permaculture in action in the face of disaster. Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. It was it was the sort of, you know, the ethic of permaculture, really, I mean, you can learn a whole lot of things about permaculture, and it's a lifelong study. But if you can remember, care of the earth and care of people. And if you're doing that, you're getting very close to permaculture. Mm, I've heard you speak of emergency permaculture. Mm -hmm. Is that along this same context? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that... Um, I mean, in a sense, we are in a planetary emergency. There is a sort of big E emergency, you know, that's happening with climate change and, and the sort of, you know, fundamental shifts in the sort of ecological carrying capacity of the systems that we depend on, like the oceans. Like what's going to happen when ocean acidification 
creates uh, conditions where we can't raise shellfish anymore. It's going to destroy the economy of, of certainly Cortez Island and others. Uh, how do we deal with that? Should we be eating jellyfish, right? Um, and so to think in terms of longer time spans, like, like how are we going to plan? And it doesn't have to be, you know, all doom and gloom. I mean, yes, there are some serious challenges and yes, it's problematic, uh, but there also are opportunities. I mean, you know, you showed me yesterday an olive tree growing here in Canada and that's kind of amazing. So perhaps there might be some little opportunities uh, for uh, functions that we hadn't uh, thought of. Like nobody probably hundred years ago had thought of growing olives in British Columbia, but, but you're doing it right here. So, so maybe there'll be some, in the design world, we call affordances, like opportunities uh, to make something that's not very good, less bad, you know? So um, uh, that's the challenge. I mean, we can't just sort of, you know, stick our heads between our knees and, and give up. I think really as responsible citizens, as parents, as people who care about the future, uh, we owe it to certainly, you know, your wonderful children to keep on keeping on and, co and coming up with positive ways of, of improving our relationship with, uh, with the planetary system. Mm. And speaking of olives, it's in Salt Spring, isn't it, where there's now an olive grove that is producing Canada's first olive oil? I believe so. Or was it Saturna? It's one of those islands. I, I remember reading about it. I haven't yet visited it, but I was like, you know, gobsmacked. It was like, oh my God, yeah. olives. I mean, I thought we were known for maple syrup. So uh, bravo for whoever it is doing that. It's amazing what we can grow here. I don't think many people will really understand what the West Coast climate is like in BC. Yeah, it's, especially uh, here on incredible. the South Island. It's it's so favored. But, but what's, you know, the cautionary note is, I mean, we're sitting here in paradise looking at your beautiful uh, studio window. Uh, but the caution is it, it, it's oddly reminiscent of places like Marin, uh, you know, in Northern California, it has a very similar sort of pastoral feel. And I have a, a good friend who lives in Tamales in, uh, on the coast of Marin County. And uh, she was involved in emergency preparedness and last year, they had these terrible fires inland in places like Santa Rosa. And uh, they burned very, very quickly in areas that nobody thought would burn, like agricultural areas like, like this, like vineyards and, and, you know, kind of places that aren't sort of iconically fire prone. Um, mm -hmm. And what happened is there was some loss of life and, and a lot of loss of property. And what was interesting, though, too, was uh, and tragic was the effect after the disaster itself. So once the fires were, you know, eventually brought under control, it took a long time. There was a massive episode of homelessness, like a lot of folks who were renters, uh, lower income people in particular, people living in trailers or, 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 you know, cheaper affordable housing who didn't have fire insurance, were basically left without a place to live. And, and a lot of those folks were living in vehicles. They all left with basically the clothes on their back and maybe a few possessions and literally drove to the coast to get away from the fires. And then suddenly there's all these hundreds of people in cars that weren't there before. What are you going to do with them? You have to feed them. You have to, you know, so that's, we need to plan for that. That's going to happen more and more. And, and we need to care about what happens to these people. And we need to care about where they're going to go live. Like, like, you know, you can't just say, Oh, too bad. You lost your apartment. You know, like we have to plan for, compassionate ways to make sure that people have a future and can go back to work and get on with their lives and we're not just letting them hang because of some crazy climate change thing. 
And what can permaculture do for, as an example, the fire-prone landscape that the West Coast has become? I mean, here on Vancouver Island, we spend 10, 9, 10 months of the year inundated with water, being in a rainforest, but then three months of the summer, we have extreme fire danger all the way down the coast into California. How can permaculture play a role in helping to, I don't know if it's a dilemma, but uh, to to either have the fires be less because they seem to be increasing last year Mm -hmm. in BC was Mm -hmm. a record year Mm -hmm. and it just seems to every year they become more and more. So how do we lessen the impact and lessen the regularity? Well, that's a, that's a very complicated and interesting question. I mean, a lot of permaculture uh, uh, deals with uh, issues of relative location. Like, you know, where do you put stuff to make the most sense. And uh, so if you're in a fire-prone landscape, fires follow certain, you know, physical uh, trajectories, like fire tends to burn up hills, right? It tends to coniferous trees, you know, planted downhill uh, from a wooden house are kind of dangerous, particularly if there's a road going beside the coniferous coniferous trees where somebody might throw a cigarette butt out and, and then the whole thing. So so thinking about where things are in relationship to structures, uh, thinking about what kind of materials you're using for those structures. I notice you're, you're doing a lot here with green building, like using cob and mud, and those are very sort of good materials because they're more fire resistant than, than just raw timber. Uh, the age of, you know, and using cedar shakes and uh, cedar houses might might be a thing of the past in this climate, even though they're sort of iconic. We might be building in a more, you know, Australian way or a, a, a Middle Eastern way where we have like, you know, more cob or adobe and metal roofs or tile roofs that are more fire resistant. And then also planting fire breaks, like planting things that are like uh, fruit trees are less likely to burn than a, you know, a pine tree or, uh, you know, so by planting things downhill um, and also roads actually are very good fire breaks. uh, So making sure that roads are doing double duty to, you know, convey traffic, but also to be in ways where where they can intercept the fire, but also offer exit possibilities so that, uh, you know, you have roads that are strategically placed uh, to escape fires and that there's good emergency uh, warning systems to get people away from fires very quickly. Um, But yeah, it requires a whole systems approach. It requires anticipating the changes in the climate, how it's going to affect the landscape, how the built environment is thought about and designed where we put houses, like one of the big problems with with the fires that were happening in the BC interior is everybody wants to be on a bluff, right? Which is like the worst place to put a building in a fire zone because the fire is going to burn uphill and then you're stuck up there, right? So maybe we shouldn't be building that way. So so these are design problems and they're interesting. You know, they're they're not unsolvable. There are other parts of the world that, that are very fire prone. I mean, Southern California... Uh, is a fire landscape. The Mediterranean is a fire landscape, and people have lived there for many years, but they build differently. And, uh, you know, it requires a, a full-on design reappraisal in, in all spheres. And also what we expect from from stability. Like, like maybe we're going to have to live with fires, and maybe we're going to have to just maybe not live as remotely. Maybe we need to live in places where we can get out, or maybe you need two driveways, or maybe you need a giant pond next to your house, which I noticed that you have. So uh, you should be good here. <laughs> or a swimming pool, anyways. Yeah. 
Switching gears a bit, but springboarding off of the disaster, going into the more personal, if that's all right. Sure. Have there been any disasters or hard moments in your life that you have been able to find the silver lining in and, and that's really shaped who you are today? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm married to a, a Zen Buddhist priest and, and you know, I, I sort of absorb a lot of I hope that's not things. the disaster. No, no, God, no. Oh, no, she'll kill me. Uh, it's not true. Uh, uh, no, it's actually the opposite. Uh, uh, Ruth Ozeki, who's my, my partner, and uh, uh, she's a, a well-known Zen Buddhist priest, but also a novelist. And she's taught me a lot about... Uh, how to deal with things when they, they go wrong. And uh, the idea that, you know, life is suffering, I mean, suffering is a sort of essential reality of existence and how everything, you know, the shit does hit the fan and, you know, it's either your own health or people close to you who you lose uh, or just, you know, you have these plans and they don't work out, you know, because like something crazy happens. And so you can't stop that. And I think, uh, you know, um, being prepared uh, is hard. You know, you can you never know what's going to go wrong. But but to kind of uh, be more tolerant of, of of things not going your way, I think, are important. And to change your expectations uh, around control, I think. Uh, I've often thought, you know, oh my God, if I could only make this happen, and very often that's a beginning of a disaster right there. It's like, you know, if I think if, I have if agency, if you know, then. yeah, no, Oliver, you just can't make that happen. You're just going to have to go with the flow. And, and uh, that's a very important lesson that I've learned over the years. And, and this idea of like, what can I not do? Like, like, you know, you, you just can't do everything and, and you have to try to, you know, have, other people around who you love and trust and, and, and can support you and work with you and, and knowing that, that you're you're really just as prone to disasters as anyone else. And I, I think as you get older too, you become aware of your mortality. So to me, the permaculture has always been a kind of guiding set of principles, like like, you know, kindness to other people and to the planet. And um and knowing that um, change is sort of built into every system. Like in permaculture, we talk a lot about succession, right? And succession implies things die, right? And people die. You know, I've lost some some very you know, dear friends. I've lost my parents recently. Um, and you need to think, you know, like how, I mean, obviously it's intensely tragic and, and moving to lose someone that you love. But but what what happens after? Like what what, uh, have you built in a... A succession, like who's going to run the business after somebody retires, or or who's going to be there after this person is no longer available. Uh, available, and I think to to think to build in the the tragedy as as a knowing that it's going to happen, and obviously being mindful of of how difficult it is, but to not sort of pretend it's not going to happen. And I think disasters are our future. And they've always been. I mean, to some extent, it's always been some crazy shit that's about to happen. Uh, I think of my parents who lived through a terrible world war and, you know, they experienced fire bombings and, and like the worst, you know, and the Holocaust, everything, all this stuff. My my wife's parents went through horrible difficulty in, in Japan and, and, you know, not to mention like, you know, the plague, you know, like like somehow we survived the plague. <laughs> 
uh, mass extinction, and you know the human the human race was almost wiped out several times by volcanic eruptions, like even before we left Africa, right? So so somehow we we managed to get by, even though maybe we weren't so responsible. And and I and I think you have to have some sort of faith that people are basically worth, you know like we're worth it you know like I, i'm not one of these people who thinks that the human being is a virus and we should go extinct i actually think human beings are important and uh and we've screwed some things up massively but we also created beethoven you know and and like i don't know uh acupuncture or like whatever like these things that that are like a magnificent beautiful achievements in 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 uh for a species to come up with so so we're not all bad and i think we need to sort of Remember that sometimes mm. when we think that, you know, we are killing the planet. Yeah. But we, you know. It seems that there should probably is a Japanese Zen phrase for when the shit hits the fan. Is, is that something that... Uh, well, there probably is. <laughs> I can't think of one, but, but it's sort of built into to Zen Buddhism. And I have to say, I've been very affected by that as a, as a practice, as sort of a way of looking at the world and, you know, that life is suffering. And, and there's also this something that's very helpful, too, is this idea... And Thich Nhat Hanh talked about this a lot as there's no separation between the self and other. So, you know, there's some goats out in the field here uh, doing their goaty things. I see one going for a crap over there. Um, I guess he's finished. But but this idea that we are that goat. Like we're we, all one. We are one. And it's it's not just a thing to say. Like we're fundamentally... You know, we 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 exp- we're in this world together. We 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 are being with. You know, we're with that tree outside. We're 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 of the same stuff. And and that sort of fundamental understanding of the compassion of of the goat, me, the grass, everything. We're 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 part of the same thing, and we need to love each other. You know, and. Uh, I think if you sort of start from that perspective, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't eat a goat or you can't, you know, you know, but there's there's some sort of respect and understanding and compassion for this this uh, being. It's a sentient being. And I, I really try to live by that. I, I, I try to think in terms of like the commonality I have with, with everything out there. Mm. So it seems in your practice as a permaculturist and your relationship to a, a Zen... Zen monk? Zen, uh, priest. Zen yeah. priest? Yeah. It seems like mindfulness is certainly core of of your existence. Has that always been the case, or is that something you've kind of no. sought out or stumbled upon? I was pretty mindless uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't know. Ruth has taught me a lot. Um, and also, I think, age, uh, too. Like, I don't know. Death is a great teacher, having lost people. Uh, sickness. I was ill for a while. Uh you know, realizing that things are finite, you know, and you only have so many years, you only have so much energy, you only have so much you can get done. And, uh, and there's something beautiful about that. Like, like, I don't want to live to be a 1000 years old, you know, it, it, there's something like you have to work within the means that that, you know, existence has afforded you. And, uh, and there's a sort of humility there, like, uh, yeah, you're you're gonna be able to do what you can do, and and uh, you'll work hard and and try to, you know, be productive. But but certainly there are limits, and to and to be aware of those limits, you know, love those limits to a certain extent. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not a bad thing to just be mortal. And um, one of the problems with uh, you know capitalism. Uh, 
is that we've kind of created this myth of productivity and uh, the sense that, that, you know, we're always like, you know, there's all these productivity apps and like, you know, you need to be productive and, and I mean, you know, I'm all for getting stuff done, but, but there's a sort of internalization of, of kind of the assembly line in the way that we go through life. And, uh, you know, the bucket list being the classic example, this heinous idea of a bucket list, you know, like, like, and I don't want to be one of these people. I think, I think, you know, that's just too machinic. It's too, it's too assembly line. It's too much about internalizing neoliberalism, which is, which is a great sort of cancer of, of, of the way we've, you know, tried to turn every system into some sort of, you know, profit stream. And I think, you know, if we, it's one thing to critique it in the economic system, but if we start internalizing those values as people saying, you know, I need to be more productive, I need to use my time in such a way that it's efficient and, we have to be very careful what we mean by that. Are we internalizing a kind of, you know, neoliberal mass industrial aesthetic to, and to what end? Like, who are we be, being productive for? Like, what, what is the sort of, you know, uh, metric that we're using? You know, are we being kind? Is that a form of productivity? Or is it just that we, we, you know, got all of our emails out of our inbox, you know, like, like, I think we need to be very kind of mindful about those nuances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you are a character, are you not, in one of your wife's novels? I am a character, a fictional character, in uh, the last novel that my wife uh, put out called uh, A Tale for the Time Being. And it's an interesting book. It's, it deals with a disaster, not so much a climate change disaster, but uh, it's the sort of aftermath of, of, the, of the tsunami that happened a few years ago in, in, in uh, Sendai in Japan. And uh, a lot of debris washed up um, on the shores of British Columbia. And many of these pieces of, of material were very personal items from people's lives. And uh, so the, the novel sort of starts with a a diary that uh, it's fictional, of course, but uh, that a, a teenager had had lost, and uh, the author finds. And I'm actually the author's husband, and I'm actually in this book as a sort of fictional version of myself. Well, I really appreciate you coming to the studio tonight to do this. It's been a lot of fun. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's really great. It's so so nice to be here and to be talking about this stuff and just. Such a beautiful for those of you out out there listening. The the we're sitting here, you know, watching the sun go down with this bucolic landscape of goats and Douglas fir trees and herb herb plants, and it's just it's so lovely. It's uh, it's almost uh, Edenic. So I really appreciate being here. Yeah, it's great having you, and I uh, look forward to maybe having a part two sometime. Excellent. Look forward to it too, Todd. Right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Oliver. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Oliver Kellhammer. If you want to learn more about permaculture, check out Pacific Rim College's Permaculture Design and Resilient Ecosystems Diploma Program, one of the world's most unique and comprehensive programs. If you are looking for online learning, Pacific Rim College Online currently offers two natural building courses, Natural Building Basics Part 1 and 2, taught by permaculture faculty member Bryce Orecki. More online permaculture courses will be added soon. Find out more at PacificRimCollege.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, plant a tree, or even three.